Hey, it's Denzel. This isn't a, a normal episode. What you're about to hear are two reviews. They are for Hot Fuzz and Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Previously, these episodes were exclusive to the Patreon, but now they are free for the masses. We'll be back next week with another episode of your favorite movie podcast in its regular format. By the way, if you're not on the Patreon and you like what you're hearing in this episode, you should join up. There's more of this kind of thing on there. Let's get into the episode. It's uh, Denzel and Charles. We're here today to do a review of Hot Fuzz. Yes, sir. We initially planned on doing a commentary for it, but Charles hasn't seen it in a while, so we decided to just watch it and review it. And let me tell you, loved it. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. Great. Hot Fuzz, a.k.a. Everything is Earned. Hot Fuzz was released on 420. 2007 yeah it was directed by edgar wright produced by nira park tim bevan and eric fellner written by eric wright and simon Pegg, starring simon Pegg, nick frost and jim broadbent music by david arnold cinematography by jess hall edited by chris dickens and it's got a runtime of 121 minutes the budget was 12 to 16 million and the box office was eighty million. Pretty, so, yeah, it did pretty well. Pretty solid. And just off top, I just want to say that's one hundred twenty-one. Or that's one hundred twenty-one minutes, including credits. Yeah, that is a tight hour fifty. Yeah, yeah. The movie is about a London police constable who is forcibly forcibly transferred to a village outside of London called uh, Sanford Gloucestershire. Don't know where the fuck that is or if in, even if it's a real place. Gloucestershire is a real place. Sanford is a fake is made up. Okay. Okay. Cool. So it's a small town in the UK where he's sent to be a police sergeant. He's, he's too promoted. good at being a police officer, which in 2019 would mean that he's the bad guy (laughs) (laughs) it would be it would be like the movie black rain that we watched exactly he's too good at being a police officer we have to send him to a small small town to enforce tyranny and then to (laughs) japan to enforce further tyranny yeah it's uh it's an interesting movie because from beginning to end it's tight yes to use something else as a frame of reference for this. If you guys decided to watch Zombieland after we had done the commentary for it, you would know that the movie is paced horribly. There are large swaths of it where people are just sitting and talking and not doing shit. Yes. It's an awful film. It's awful. This is the direct opposite of that. Exactly. This is a two-hour movie that never felt like we were just waiting. Yeah. And a lot of that lends to Edgar Wright's directing style. Yes. And one of the things we talked about while we were watching it um, that we'll probably bring up again if we end up doing the commentary 
is that his use of like quick zooms and like really effective framing of all of the shots keeps you engaged the entire time stuff like even whether it's an extreme action sequence like that our two main characters <laughs> bad boysing it <laughs> flying like you know just jumping to the side firing two guns at once or if it's at, you know like in the opening sequence of the film it's fucking simon Pegg riding a bike <laughs> for literally two seconds it's a very quick scene but it's like you see him on a bike just long enough to reg- register that he's on a bike and then you focus you zoom in on his tire and it shoots up to his face and that's it's so dynamic and engaging and you don't get that a lot of times. No, you don't. In a lot of cases, what you get are if you look at something like Ant-Man, mm-hmm. which was intended to be directed by by Edgar Wright. Got to get to that alternate reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you look at that in particular, you can see the portion that was an Edgar Wright piece. Like where they do the quick cuts and Michael Pena is doing the voiceover for everybody that's yes. in the shots. Like you can tell so that's those Edgar were, Wright. I'm pretty sure based on like interviews I've read, I'm pretty sure those sequences were holdover from Edgar Wright's draft of the, of oh, the, cool. of the film. So like yeah. that's pure Edgar Wright. It wasn't directed by him. And like the end result wasn't directed by him, but that was written in the script. Yeah. And that's a good thing. So imagine it's the best part of the movie. film full of those sorts of things yeah. except without the voiceover like the the way that, that level of engagement cuts. yeah like you're engaged throughout those entire sequences because from the start the music is playing and it's like cutting in and out of things and it's very short scenes but it's not directed in a way that makes you turn into a fucking boomer and say oh this was made for kids with too short of yeah. attention spans there's a, there's a real issue with action movies in particular where they tend to cut so often that it's jarring especially during fight scenes and hot fuzz doesn't do that no because the cuts are frequent and they get you used to it in the opening sequence of it's either going to be like a tight zoom from an like a wider a, a wider scene or it's going to be multiple cuts of the same sequence really quickly but in a way that's not dizzying yeah like uh one of the biggest things like at the beginning of the movie is it's shot like a promo for a police procedural yeah yeah it is and we didn't i don't think either of us looked it up but it does you know denzel pointed out that like it seems it's probably simon Pegg doing the voiceover yeah you can hear him affecting the same sort of voice later in that the he, movie yeah that he does as you know nicholas yeah, as, yeah you know as the nicholas character. angel yeah so it flows pretty well but like it's shot in a way that primes you for how the rest of the movie is going to be in the first two minutes of the movie and the con like the wit is so quick but genuine if you've met someone who's from london or like from a major city in the uk that's just how they talk it doesn't feel like if you watch firefly and you see how quick joss whedon's writing is yeah where everybody's got just, the maximum snarky response for it's, everything it's for the viewer and not for the characters yeah and it suffers because of it you, you know we did commentaries for 
the first two Avengers movies, and that's exactly what it is. Almost none of that dialogue is for the characters themselves. Yeah, it's, it's all just, for the audience. It's like, here's the archetype that we're going to put these characters in, and they say things, and this is how you build on top of that, and it's just layers on layers of dialogue. Yeah, and but that's actually... there's no depth to it. It's funny that you bring that up, because you saying that actually triggers a lot of things in my mind yeah where it's kevin smith is a good example of that as well yo he clerks is nobody talks like that the like i can understand to a degree that you're supposed to have a certain level of disbelief suspended for those characters but those conversations and the way that they're toned is for the audience exactly it's not it's not for the people in the movie because like if randall and the other guy have known each other for so many years then one of the two dudes i can't read let's call him ben uh that's not his name but we're not gonna look it up yeah believe us if if ben is talking to randall and randall says something outlandish there's no way that ben is gonna react immediately with no pause yeah immediately have a response to that yeah on top of it if you're all functional human beings i see you guys on the discord i know who you are <laughs> if you've talked to a person that you've been friends with for two three ten years like if you close friends with somebody and you have a conversation you know each other really well but even still if someone says some like outlandish shit it you'll process it and then you'll say something that relates directly to them but not in a way that's just like we're just stacking fucking yeah. words on top of each other it's like combos in fucking like tony hawk or yeah uh the snowboarding game i can't remember the name of it it would have been a, tricky yes in ssx tricky it's it's like people are attempting to stack conversational combos and it's not effective and it's not good it's not believable yes and it takes you out of it yeah like clerk's is cool if you've never seen a student film before. Yeah, I mean, Clerks, Clerks is a student film. As, as somebody who went to film school, the people who are lionized the most in film school are Robert Rodriguez for really no particular reason. Uh, he Quentin doesn't Tarantino. even shoot action particularly well. No, he doesn't. Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Those yeah. three people are like the gods of any particular film school. And I would say like the the instinct in me, because people are dorky like that, like are they? I want to say that they're praising the entrepreneurial spirit and like it's oh, the fact they, that they were DIY. It's the fact that their films weren't produced by major studios yeah and that is inspiring on its own yeah which fair but the fact that those three men in particular have careers based on their early work is inspiring they persisted at their one thing that each of those men is good at and that took them to mainstream success yeah to an extent yeah i would not really argue that kevin smith has had a ton of mainstream success i mean he had uh two big movies like two really big movies uh that would be dogma yeah because that was dogma the height of ben affleck's career yeah dogma was big at the time but is not one of the things it's not a frequently visited film yeah and when people watch it they don't think of kevin smith yeah it's just like ben affleck and chris chris rock yeah it they think to a lesser extent salma hayek yeah because she's still salma hayek who's always a dream (laughs) 
Yes. But she doesn't have a ton to do, and her line deliveries aren't great. I watched Dogma about a year ago. Yeah. And it's A little bit fine. rough. But the the only thing that really ties it to Kevin Smith is like Jay and Silent Bob are in it, and yeah. they're like horrifically out of place in that movie. They don't belong in that film. Yeah. They're, they take it. Honestly, seeing them in the movie takes you out of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it doesn't, they don't fit the universe that he's established up to that, up to the point that they're introduced. And you're like, I, they're from clerks and clerks too. Yeah. (laughs) And they don't fit at all. But it's like, this is the writing style that I have. It's, you have one outlet, you have like outlandish characters and you have these quote unquote grounded characters who will just say some real like meta shit. Yeah, I was like that's that's I that's but so that's a self awareness that was that had a place in the nineties. That's that's why I always say self awareness doesn't make you it good. It, yeah, because I will watch a movie like that, and the characters are openly acknowledging what's going on in the film, like lightly breaking the fourth wall. Uh, Chasing Amy, I think, was oh, one of those yeah. movies where it had uh, what's her name with the crazy voice. I can't remember the actress's name. Was it Chasing Amy? It may not have been. It was one of Kevin Smith's early films. It had uh, one of the. It had a black actor who was playing somebody who was gay, and it had this woman in it. And the conversations that they were having were very like. Yes, chasing Amy. That movie was fucking dog shit. It's not good. It's actively bad. And stars uh, two Afflecks. Oh, Casey is in it. Yep. Nice. It's not so. I had never really thought about how much Kevin Smith directly influenced Ben Affleck's career. Yeah, he, he was would in not a lot have been a movie shit. star yeah, if it weren't for Kevin Smith. I don't. I don't think so. No, because it's he. He was in Mallrats, right? Like yeah. that. Not to say that that was the beginning of his career, but he was in Mallrats and things. He's like a handsome dude, and he played like a douchebag really well. Yeah, because he's Bostonian. That's just how they are. <laughs> and, and so America picked up on that or whatever. Anyway, the larger point that I wanted to make about Kevin Smith is that if you watch any of his movies that that's not how people conversate with each yeah, other it's it's it feels like they're putting on a show in a movie it's a heightened re- it it feels like a college production yeah it's a heightened reality that is just to talk to the kind of people who go and see college productions or who see independent films i know a lot of people who participate in the uh, 24-hour film contest uh here in san diego and let me guess a lot of it's about violence I don't watch their films. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody who went to film school and then worked at a studio with people who made independent films, you'd be surprised how many people just make movies that are about violence. Because violence is easy. Yeah. We're getting away from anyway, the movie yes. we're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, like that, it, it's the kind of thing that sets Edgar Wright apart is his dialogue is realistic. Yes. Because it takes into account who you're supposed to be directly relating to and what their environment is. If you met someone who's from London, in the same way that like a lot of uh, projects that are like set in New York, have you seen like uh, Crashing by Pete Holmes? You know, Pete Holmes. It was a. I hate Pete Holmes. Oh, man. I, I listen to his I, podcast. I know why. You made it weird. It's not a good example of. Well, actually, okay. it it's a perfect example of him. Dude, his laugh. And like his so, stand, so his stand-up specials are good. I don't want to get into Pete Holmes. Just real quick, real quick, 
two two people who are huge podcasters that I fucking can't listen to. Aisha Tyler. I can't listen to her either. And Pete Holmes. Because Pete Holmes will interrupt people with his disgusting laugh. He, I stopped listening to You Made It Weird because it's hard to get through. I like his stand-up. And I... There are a handful of his interviews, and like this, he's had over three hundred episodes. There's maybe twenty. Like, yeah, I listen to. and it's just like it'll be. And also, I hate listening to comedians talk about things because they're for the largely they're depressed people whose lives are miserable and like they can't get over their self loathing because then like some some of them believe that their self loathing is what makes them funny, and That's, so they wallow in it. Yeah. And it's like really gross to hear them talk about like the idea that you have to be don't have good relationships. The idea that you have to be broken to create art is a very toxic mentality. Absolutely. And I, like as a musician who does suffer from depression, I don't think that my creation of art and if you like you listen to any of the stuff that I've recorded or like if you come to like, you know, if you listening to the music that I've made, none of that comes from I'm depressed. Yes. Maybe the first episode of give it to me straight <laughs> because I explicitly bring, cause I had just been diagnosed with depression at the time. But like maybe that first episode is about my depression, but everything else is like, let's talk about being a person. And like, you don't have to be a broken person to create art. A lot of people who get into creating art do have issues, but that's because being a person is really hard. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that some people just deal with it better. Yeah. But anyway, going back to the dialogue of Hot Fuzz, it's realistic and it never feels disingenuous. Even if you're not from that culture, like of London, you know, <laughs> like the UK. You get a vibe for how these people interact immediately, and what the great with the way they frame it is, Nicholas Angel is so almost robotic at the beginning of the film, and the people the way you get the frame the frame of reference you have is the people reacting to him, but because the opening sequence is just his accomplishments and how he does like in certain situations, you're like, oh, this dude's this way, and so out the gate you already have. Here's the baseline of what we're going to be seeing. And everything else is reacting to that from the opening sequence of it's just three other actors against Nicholas, you know, against Simon Pegg being basically a police robot for the first half hour of the film. And it sets your frame of reference. Like, this is how normal people are. And this is how he is. And then they put him in a different situation where they're where it's even more relaxed and all those people feel real out of the gate you know the couple that owns the bar is we've met you know we've met people who own bars like small like divey spots and they're just like yeah we this is our whole life we work 18 hours a day but like we enjoy it and it's cool i mean they were like serving minors and <laughs> yeah yeah we've i feel like we, we've maybe definitely been we've all been to places that serve minors. Where, yeah absolutely no doubt places that i've been like i could have been drinking here before i turned 21 <laughs> why did i wait yeah but uh yeah like there's all these moments that they edgar wright puts edgar wright and from his directing style and also like simon Pegg and nicholas frost like they're all the writing staff uh put in the work to give you a frame of reference for how you're supposed to feel about what's happening on screen. And it pays off in every single moment that it's subverted. So like, you know, Shaun of the Dead came before this. 
It was in 2004. This was 2007. And Shaun of the Dead is a great example. But like, I feel like Shaun of the Dead maybe holds your hand a little bit more in terms of like the references back and forth. And Hot Fuzz is just like, hey, this is kind of on the nose, but remember it. Like when you see James Bond, uh, Timothy Dalton's character, he's not James Bond in this movie. When you see <laughs> Timothy Dalton in the movie and at every crime scene, he's listening to a relevant like something relevant. Very and by every crime scene, I mean only the two that we see him around. Yeah, they're very sparse with the references that pay off later, but they work. It's yeah. very well done. Yeah, this is. I don't know if in elementary school you ever had to do line art. Yeah, but this movie is like a good example of line art. You have a circle with different points: a on one side, a on the opposite side. And you you take a ruler and you draw a line from A to A, B to B, C to C, and so on. And you do that and you create this piece of line art that's really fucking rad, right? This movie is basically referential line art with itself. So it'll make reference to something in the beginning and at the end of the movie it pays off. And something in the middle of the movie and later in the movie it'll pay off. Like there are there's I don't think there's like one anything that doesn't pay off in this movie. I was like keeping track because once the first time there was a callback to an earlier sequence, I was like, we're only 20 minutes in. Yeah, dude. this is going to be a thing. And so I was just like keeping track. Of it. And literally everything pays off. Every in every sequence or like idea introduced in the first half of the movie pays off in the second half of the movie. And like there's this I calling it a dip is kind of unfair because it never feels like a dip. But. They spend about 20 minutes up top establishing the characters and then the town where most of the plot takes place. And then you see those ideas applied to the situation. And then when the twist happens, it's like, hey, remember those things from 20 minutes ago? Like, it's a perfect, like... basically like three 30 minute sequences that all tie in very closely the first and the third like first act and the third act tie so are so very well paralleled and the second the second act is just to us like give you the context for how those are going to call back to each other and it's fucking great yeah like to the to the point where the idea of a swan getting loose is a joke that's even like based on a prank call is how the movie basically ends. It's so well done. Yeah. From top to bottom. Hot Fuzz might be the closest to a perfect film. Yeah. It's like very in terms of good. It, the, I will give it the caveat of being a comedy. Yes. I I'll mean, say it's the closest to a perfect comedy I've probably ever seen in terms of how everything ties in. And how tight everything it's is. T- it, it's, this movie should be studied in film schools because of how tight everything is and how the dialogue is. And even the cinematography is incredible. That's, and that's something I, when, we were, when Denzel and I were watching it, I was constantly like, that's so well done. Edgar Wright, his, he has a tendency to focus on close-ups. He either does he'll start this like he'll start the uh, the cut as a close up or he'll start at one distance and then zoom in, and he uses very rapid zooming 
to give a sense of action to everything that's happening and it works. But then he also, a lot of the scenes where there's dialogue, he's starting off from shoulders up. So you're, you relate so you relate to the characters so quickly because you're only ever seeing just their face. There's nothing else in the frame. You're getting just enough to establish the environment, which has already been set up by an earlier scene. And so you're getting their face. And so you were as human beings, we have this tendency to see, I forget what the uh, phenomenon is called, but there's this phenomenon where if you ever looked at like tile or even like textured paint, you'll notice faces. That's why like we've noticed like the smiley face on Mars or like shit like that are we're used to, we're so we're such social animals that we're used to seeing the, uh, we try to find a facial structure and everything we're looking at. So I was like eyes, mouth is the minimum for face. And then, you know, we look for that and then we build on top of that. So the idea that we like see faces and things is ingrained into our neurology. So by focusing so many of the scenes on faces, you relate to the characters very early. Even like, even Danny, when you see him in that first scene, when uh, Nicholas goes to the bar, the first night that he's in uh, Sanford, you don't really, you, you don't, there's no close-ups on Danny, but he's in almost every frame that Nicholas is in. So you know he's going to be important because you keep seeing him, whether he's over, he's always over the shoulder and he's ordering another, he orders three pints in that first scene and he's constantly weirdly eating nuts. Like the way he's eating nuts out of that like weird chalice thing is <laughs> so deliberate. And that's probably just how uh, Nicholas Frost eats. <laughs> but it's so deliberate how he's like taking one nut at a time and like putting it in the front of his mouth before chewing it that you can't help but notice it even though you're watching Simon Pegg act in that scene and it gives like it just catches you and then then in the next when the scene changes to the next day and you see him in it and he's over the shoulder again and then every other time you see him you're right up on his shoulders you're like you're now now you know these are the two main characters. They're the only characters in the first half hour of the film that you see shoulder to the top of their head. And it does a great job of connecting you to these two characters. That's how you know they're the main characters. It's very well done. Yeah. Yeah. So one one idea that I wanted to bring up is that this movie is two hours long, or hour 50, and it doesn't feel like two hours at all. Not at any point does it feel like it's two hours it long. It just zips by. And you had brought up the comparison of Avengers Endgame. And that movie feels like five hours long. Not to... Okay, so to be real, uh, there are a few sequences in Endgame that felt very quick. Like the beginning where Thor and the gang yeah. go to another up planet. To the, up to... From the beginning of the film up to the time jump. Yeah. is like, cool. This is happening. Things are fucking shifting. Yeah. And then the time jump happens. And then it's like... We got to fucking catch you up in the, the longest fuck? scenes possible. And then it it feels like after the time jump to basically when Thanos comes back, all of that just feels like 40 hours. It seems like I just went to work because 
it's a fight to pay attention to it. And it's it. over a third of the movie. Yeah. It's, it's over a it's third. It's a lot of you, talking. Yeah. And the, I hate time travel as is. I think time travel is fucking dumb. And but the fact that they spend probably 15 minutes just establishing the idea. Yeah. Well, we thought about doing time travel. Oh, it's not possible. Oh, here's here's Robert Downey Jr. being Tony wishy-washy. Overnight. Yeah. And like, isn't Bruce Banner just as smart as he is, if not smarter? Banner is more into biology. Okay. I think they do establish that pretty early on that because of his condition. He's more focused on biology. Okay. Tony's more of a physicist. But even still, but it's not... Even like when Tony figures it out, it doesn't feel earned. Yeah. Because he's been out of it. You know what? Here's... We've talked it, about how we don't like yeah. Endgame. It, here's if you something to this, just you've a, definitely heard that episode. Just a thought that I just had. Uh, when Bruce Banner is sitting in the diner with Captain America, Black, Black Widow, Widow, and Ant-Man, and Ant-Man just offers up his identity, that's another reason why the end of Far From Home doesn't fucking make any sense. Because identities don't mean anything. Yes. Yeah. In the They don't mean anything in the MCU to the, to the point that the idea that Scott Lang would be like, I'm Ant-Man. And nobody's like, oh, why would you say that? Clearly, nobody cares. Everyone yeah. knows who everyone else is. It's literally just Spider-Man. The only reason that Scott would even have the idea that people wouldn't know who he was is because he had only operated in San Francisco up to that point. <laughs> yeah. But now it's also been five years and you're listed as missing. People know that you're Ant-Man. <laughs> yep. Anyway. But like, uh, I also made the comparison of Toy Story. Mm-hmm. So... I want to see Toy Story 4. I haven't seen it yet. But I've watched the first three Toy Stories in the last two days. So Toy Story 1, 81 minutes, including credits. Toy Story 2, maybe 10 minutes longer. Toy Story 3, which takes which was released a full decade after Toy Story 2, is two hours long. It does not need to be two hours long. No. Toy Story 3, I enjoyed even still, like even watching it last night, I still enjoyed it. But I was like, this the movie doesn't need to be two hours long. It's two and I might be wrong, but I think it's like two ten. Yeah. I'm like, why? I mean that's including credits, which means that the film itself it's is two, two hours. hours long. Yeah. I'm like, this doesn't need to be this fucking long. Yeah. And but I, like that that it, that's like how quickly film culture changed. Yeah. Is that in exactly ten years we went from a feature film that was a children's film. So children's films tend to be shorter. It's been, it's so apparent just in comparing two films in the same franchise, how quickly the culture shifted from this is speaking only of children's films, which are typically shorter than feature films for adults. The fact that we went from 90 minutes to 130 in a decade was like, this is fucking wild that we've just accepted that films are going to be this long. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I would like to have seen what would happen with a hot fuzz if it came out today. Yeah. Because it would either be relegated to a Netflix or it would have a wide release, but it would have sequel after sequel after yeah. sequel after sequel. And what's like a small... Even something like Bright, which I'm sure had a budget that was in multi-millions. But let's say something like Bright, which wasn't particularly good, is having sequels made. They're building a franchise. And out Bright of it. was a, not hour a good and a half. Movie. 
Not a good movie. 90 minutes, though. Yeah. They kept it contained. Yeah, absolutely. Probably because of the budget, because it is a Netflix production. Yeah. They were like, we can spend uh, this much. <laughs> the bu- the uh, budget was $12 million. Or for, estimated to be 6 to $12 million. For what? Bright? For Bright. Really? Oh, that's not that much. Well, that's why they're making a sequel. Yeah. They I made mean, $32 million. They did? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's with its theatrical releases overseas and with the streaming. amount of people who streamed it. Yeah, yeah. So very good for what they spent. Yeah, But absolutely. even still, that movie, which clearly didn't have a ton of like excitement going into it, still was like, we're going to keep it to 90 minutes. Max Landis is not a good writer. so Yeah, you know what? It's kind of funny because I was looking at the ideas that he has, and it's not as if the... It, the content of the ideas that he has not particularly unique, but the ideas themselves are unique yeah. to at least the landscape, right? Urban fantasy, that's unique enough to where you could say, oh, this is different enough from the mainstream to be able to make this bankable. Uh, the fucking, what's it called? Camera thing? What's found it? footage. Found footage, yes. Uh, found footage superheroes. Oh, that's unique. So like Chronicle was unique and so the only two things I really like from Mac, Max Landis are uh, Chronicle mm-hmm. and Superman American Alien. He has done other writing for Superman, and I didn't like any of it. American Alien works because it's kind of out of continuity. And so I feel like that's where a lot of like Superman stories really flourish is when they don't have to. He's an 80-year-old character. You can, yeah. Or he's an, and now he's an 85-year-old character. There's only so much you can do with a character with that much baggage isn't the right word, but like that much continuity, even though it's not all entirely valid. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is being retconned he's, as we speak. Yeah. He's a cultural icon. Yeah. Who's been around for longer than most of the people who know the word Superman. Yeah. So there's only so much you can do with that. Uh, in continuity so you've got to if you're going to want to tell a good Superman story you probably have to do it outside of it unless you're Brian Michael Bendis and I'm really enjoying his Superman stuff that's a different podcast <laughs> yeah but like, yeah. you know the fact that even Bright was only an hour and a half yeah and it's like but that idea that you can tell a tight story in less time and still have so much depth to it getting back to Hot Fuzz the amount of depth and like a lot of that is the directing and cinematography, but a lot of it is also the acting. Like it's yeah, a lot of the acting is in subtle. The movie is good, even if they don't have a name. Yeah, there's there's not one point in that movie that I was watching. I was like, dude, this this dude's dialing it in. Sucks. Like yeah. what the fuck? But in like something in a lot of American movies, I don't know what it is, but the acting doesn't feel as practice sometimes so yeah. if you watch something like bright the performances are all over the place in that movie wildly it's so weird whereas in hot fuzz everybody's super consistent across the they're board. committed to their characters across the board all of the actors in this film whether they're a major character or a minor character is committed to their character and whether they're like the you know, Martin Freeman and the two inspectors at the beginning of the film, they're in exactly two scenes. They're in that scene at the beginning and they're in a scene at the end. Yep. And they're consistent over the maybe six minutes of screen time that they have. 
all of the characters in Sanford are exactly who they are from beginning to end of their time in the movie. And it's fucking great. You buy that they're the same characters in different situations. And that's great character construction from an acting and directing standpoint. That's great character direction. The idea that you like, you have a firm idea of who you're going to be out the gate and that that follows through and doesn't just shift depending on what the plot needs is really admirable as a viewer because you buy it the entire time. These, when characters don't feel like people, they feel like like archetypes are or archetypes just for even reason. pieces to help usher the plot along. Yeah. If you watch like the last witch hunter, uh, the woman who's the wildling from Game of Thrones, unfortunately, I forget the actress's name. She's in that movie, but she's not in that movie. Yeah. She feels like a plot device. Yeah. And the thing that this movie does really well is you believe that they're all people outside of the plot. Yeah. Like they have lives. And one of the great things I did was the church fet where yes. you see people out of uniform and like how they interact with other people in the city. Cause the city only has nine police officers. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And being able to like, even that light personal touch lets you go even further into knowing like, Oh, these people, these people exist outside of the police station. And also what helps with that is the idea that none of them are particularly professional in the workplace. Yeah. So Doris is like a huge slut, but like, it's not, it's not as if she's like slutty within the confines of the police station. It's that she's like, Hey, my character, my behavior is super sexual because I'm one of the few not old women in this town. Yes, exactly. And if you grew up in a small community, which I did, you have a young woman like that in your. <laughs> You're thinking of someone right now. <laughs> yeah, and like the Andes, for instance, like they are probably the closest to like just weird archetypes that exist in that police station. But even them, they, they get these small like moments people. where you're like, your dad sells strawberries. It's like in raspberries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like that you, it establishes that he grew up there and is only detective because this, they needed detectives and took his idea of detectives. The fact that both the Andes have the exact same mustache <laughs> and both smoke cigarettes and like have when the scene they're introduced in both have their legs up on the desk. Like it's so clearly a construction on their individual parts <laughs> that like, Oh, we're detectives in title only. So we're going to behave this way is everything is believable. Even the over, like to the point where, like, the over the top action stuff, like in that <laughs> scene where uh, Simon Pegg is in pursuit and he's like jumping over the fence. And based on what we've seen up to that point, yeah, of course he's able to jump over fences. But then, like, the fact that the last fence he jumps over, he does a flip. <laughs> What's happening? But it doesn't take you out of it. No, it's just like a, it's a fun joke. It's a flourish. It's a yeah. joke. Exactly. It's just a bit on. It's an extension of what we already know about the character. It's not something that comes out of nowhere and it's funny because it's lol random. Yeah. It's funny because it's like that's the first like little hint of, of a personality. Yeah. That cuz 
we saw him jump over four fences just like a normal person would. And he does a flip over the last one. And we see him earlier in the, like in the opening sequence, base episode, like he broke the sprinting record. He did karate. He did fencing. Like he's like the most physically fit on the force. Like we know all of that. And so when he does that flip and then we does other, like that's the only really unrealistic thing that he does is a flip over a fence. Every other action sequence you see him in is like, that's, what I was expect, what I would expect out of a police officer who was combating someone who's bigger than them is a lot of holds and a lot of like distractions. Yeah. But that bit works really well because it's very quick and it's immediately like cut by straight slapstick of an overweight person going through a fence. Yeah. And then he doesn't go through the second fence. That's what like keeps it from being like, okay. <laughs> it could very easily be very like stereotypical making fun of a fat actor if he had also just fallen through the second fence. But the fact that he runs through the first one because he's trying to do the same shit and he's like, I can't do that and climbs over the second one. Just it adds a level of realism. It's it's good. Yeah. Their acting is great. Their writing is great. Like we like we said half an hour ago, this is pretty close to being a very perfect, like very close to being a perfect film in terms of tone, acting, directing. It's all very consistent across the board, and never you never feel like you're sitting through a movie. You feel like you're engaging an experience, and it yeah. goes a long way. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite movies. It's been one of my favorites for a long time. I've seen it like probably over 50 times. I'm probably going to watch it again this weekend. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's it's fun. It's very good. I recommend checking it out. Absolutely. This, have- is, this is if we had like a cr- criterion list for the show, aside from like the no concessions part. Yeah. I would say this would be on the permanent list for of sure. like greatest movies of all time. And this is only my second viewing of this film. But having seen so many other films, yeah, I 100% agree. Like this is a top tier film, absolutely. In terms like construction, in terms of construction, top tier across the board, very well executed. I agree. Anything else you want to add? I wish I had seen this movie more times than twice <laughs> because it is very good. Yeah, I saw it in theaters 12 years ago. And I saw it today in a hot apartment, and I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> I There are only a few movies that I say, like, I wish I could delete that from my mind so and I experience could experience it for the first time. Yeah. This is not one of those movies. I think this movie, every time I watch it, it gets better. Like, the first time I saw it, I fucking loved it, and I waited for it to come out on home media so I could pirate it. A uh, shout out to 18-year-old me or whatever. Yeah, that would have been 18-year-old us. Uh, yeah, that's what? That's past the statute of limitations. <laughs> anyway, I it's didn't It's not a felony. So, statute of limitations is, I think, three years in California. Okay, perfect. If it's not a felony. If it is a felony, I think it goes up to 10 years. Oh, all right. Well, we're past it anyway. Yeah, we're way past it. <laughs> I loved this movie. This was one of the movies. I had like five movies back in the day that I would watch as I was going to sleep. And this was one of them like it was this uh fifth element and the born supremacy for some reason the born movies aren't particularly good but that was one of them 
I recommend this movie 100%. I even recommend this is something you're not going to hear me say very often. Go buy it. Go buy this yeah. movie. This it's, movie's fucking it's good. It's on Netflix, but we know Netflix. It's not going to be on Netflix forever. No, they, I actually, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because I saw somebody post on Twitter that they're taking it off of Netflix. I, I keep track of what films are entering and leaving Netflix every month. And I'm always like, all right, I got 28 days to watch this movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm honestly, I'm probably going to buy this movie this week, like today or tomorrow, just so that I have it. Yeah. Because it's, it's very good. It, it's one this of the, one of, this is subjectively good movies that I've watched in a long time. Yeah. Objective or subjective? I, I would say objective. I think that anybody could enjoy like i mean unless you're not like opposed to a lot of profanity or one or two scenes of graphic violence or you hate comedy and laughing yeah but i think that anybody could enjoy this movie a lot imagine if you only like family guy style of comedy and then you try to watch this you'd be like where are the jokes where are the people farting yeah. why aren't they making fun of the jews <laughs> i even <laughs> There is a there is a single frame or not a single frame, but it was like a very quick shot of a star, a star of, of Judah, a star of David. Yeah, star of star of Judah. I don't. It's, line, it's a Lion King thing. No, what? It's, it's okay. Lion. It doesn't matter. That's a Rastafarian <laughs> thing, and Rastafarians are. Oh, they call that shape a star of Judah in Rastafarian. What's the Lion of Judah? Rastafarians are weirdly. Uh, anti-semitic no they're very old testament based that's not what we're having a conversation about (laughs) if you're into watching comedies or action movies you're going to enjoy hot fuzz hot fuzz is very thematically tight the acting is solid the cinematography is great it's enjoyable top to bottom from even before the film actually starts like i mentioned that like just the studio logo has police sirens in it. I've seen that studio logo four or five times. I've seen a few of the other Rogue Studios films. And they have like music or sound that reflects the movie that you're about to watch. And they don't have to do that shit. And they do. And it, like, it sets you up for what you're about to see in an enjoyable way. Agreed. Check out this movie. Watch it. what up it's me denzel and charles and we're here to do a review of dora and the lost city of gold shouts out to juice campbell yeah shout outs to juice campbell that was nice please forgive me there will be noise in the background it's fucking hot in my apartment and the power bill went up so i don't want to run the ac so on and so forth i need to introduce a new patreon tier to pay for the air conditioning (laughs) in this fucking apartment (laughs) well the highest bill that I ever had in this apartment for power was $400. Wild. Yeah. And that was AC running all day, all night for 30 days straight. That'll do it. Yep. And you know what? When you're 26 and you just want to be comfortable, 
You learn lessons. Yeah. Now, instead of running the AC at home, I just go sit in a dark movie theater. <laughs> you like that transition? It's perfect. That's the way to do it. Segway, I should say. Yeah. Anyway, we watched Dora and the Lost City of Gold on a very hot Sunday. Actually, it was actually really nice. Pretty temperate. Sunday was pretty nice. Yeah. Sunday was actually really chill. Um, Dora and the Lost City of Gold was directed by James Bobbin, produced by Kristen Burr, screenplay by Nicholas Stoller and Matthew Robinson, story by Tom Wheeler and Nicholas Stoller, based on Dora the Explorer by Chris Gifford, Valerie Walsh Valdez, and Eric Weiner, starring Isabella Moner, Eugenio Derbez, Michael Pena, Eva Longoria, and Danny Trejo. Music by John Debney and Germaine Franco. Cinematography by Javier Aguirre Sorobe. I can't say that well. <laughs> I tried to put a little bit of Spanish on it, but it didn't work out well. Edited by Mark Everson. <laughs> it had a runtime of 102 minutes. Its budget was 49 million and box office was 21 million. Oh my God. That's so awful. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's terrible. Can you say terrible? <laughs> oh my God. All right. So I guess let's start with an explanation of the movie. It's Dora the Explorer. Uh, she lives with her family in the jungle because her parents just raised her in the jungle for some reason. They're like treasure hunters or explorers or some shit, yep. but they're like broke boys. I, they're anthropologists. I don't know why they're never called anthropologists in the movie. That's definitely what they're doing. They're specifically studying Incan culture based on their ruins. That's anthropology. Um, Can you say anthropology? <laughs> but not the clothing. But uh, there's never really explained why, despite having family in Southern California, they insist on raising their daughter at their weird research hut in the middle of Peru. You know what that kind of reminded me of? Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Oh, yeah, when they just have Millie Bobby Brown in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's just living in a fucking jungle. Or, no, the lab was... No, that was in South America, not Japan. That's right. It was Brian Cranston's son in the first Godzilla who's living with them in Japan while he's managing that nuclear facility. Yes, yes. Anyway, it's super unclear why she's living with them. But you know what? It's a comedy movie made for children. Yeah. So we don't ask you too many questions. Up. Yeah, exactly. They, uh, the movie opens with basically like a live action version of the cartoon intro. And then firmly establishes that this is her imagination because she's six years old. And like, cool. They acknowledged it, and now it's grounded for some reason. Uh, Boots is still blue, but he is a normal monkey, quote unquote. Yeah. Is there? Do they do a trap remix of the Dora theme? No. Oh, okay, good. I don't remember that, but it sounds like something they would do. It's definitely like a revamped version of it, but it's just uh, not made in like Garage Band by someone who just learned Garage Band back in two thousand four. <laughs> Flash animation in yeah. Garage Band. Can you say Garage Band? <laughs> Luckily, they only do that once in the movie. They do it twice. Twice? Yeah, they do it once when she's a little girl. And then when she's like doing her GoPro vlogging thing. She oh. Does, and then it's over. I, it's weird that they never go back to the GoPro vlogging. 
Yeah, you'd think that'd be a bigger thing, but I guess it's just an excuse for her to interact in the same way, like to kind of reinforce that she socialized weird. Yeah. Because we don't see her, like, upload that later. There's no implication that she's, like, a YouTube channel. Yeah. Which just would be an interesting way to, you know, frame that as a, yeah, she still, like, talks to people about the things she's doing because she has a YouTube channel where she, like, fucking explores Peru, which would actually be pretty popular. Yeah. With a 16-year-old girl just, like, marching around the the forest by herself. Yeah. People would be like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Where are your parents? Why is that monkey blue? (laughs) Why... Why do I keep seeing this fox with a blue fucking mask, a, a fox that feels the need to stay anonymous for some reason, as if people won't notice him, Look, just a big fox on its hind legs. You can't recognize every fox you've ever seen <laughs> individually. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's like starts off. She's six. Diego's presumably also six or seven. I don't know what their age difference is supposed to be in the cartoon, but presumably that's still intact. Diego's moving to the city. They only ever say the city, despite later straight up being like they live in Silver Lake. Oh, Diego has to leave and presumably and then the movie jumps forward 10 years and Dora's just been homeschooled for a decade Uh, just in the wilds of Peru while her parents look for this uh, ancient Incan city. And then they fucking find it. and They're like, we can't bring the 16 year old on this expedition um dora go stay with your family in silver lake yep we're gonna send you to one of the rougher areas of <laughs> los angeles <laughs> i thought silver lake's a nice spot silver lake can be a nice spot it's like one of those like almost literal train track areas <laughs> <laughs> if you cross the lake yeah it's just suddenly <laughs> you saw how many brown people were at that school yeah, yeah. I mean, but it is fiction. Yeah. I don't know if that school is actually supposed to be representative of, of the Silver Lake area. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter. Yeah, she's up in Silver Lake and her cousin she, in public is a real big piece of shit to her. Yeah, he's uh clearly and openly ashamed to be uh related to Dora. And Dora's really smart cuz she was homeschooled by two professors, but she's also socially inept because she Grew up in the jungle and was homeschooled by her professor parents. And what are they professors of and where? Presumably anthropology and who the fuck knows? It's never brought up. <laughs> They're what? Teaching in the fucking jungle? They're fu- that's how Boots learned how to talk? <laughs> he had fucking two professors hanging out with him? And like even, like later when we meet a character who uh, says that he studied with Dora's dad at an actual college in Peru... It doesn't, they don't like reestablish that that's where her parents are like working, like where they're getting their funding from, who they have to submit to, how they got, how they can justify having a child with them that entire time. It's left very ambiguous what uh, Dora's parents actually do and for whom. Yeah. Uh, my guess is that they're actually just grave robbers <laughs> or maybe murderers. And they just are using being professors as a cover because there's nobody the fuck else around to ask yeah, them about equally it. Bad. They're equally as bad as our antagonists. Yeah. We just don't see them because they're the protagonist's uh, parents. And they get kidnapped or something. Do they get kidnapped? They do get kidnapped. Oh, that's towards the end, though. Because it's like implied they get kidnapped. Yeah, it's towards the end. They just kind of lose radio contact. But Dora meets uh, the only other people with names. That she's not related to, uh, Sonny, who is 
like valedictorian type, despite presumably also being a sophomore. She's like the smart kid who bookish child who's just a piece of shit she's an asshole for no reason because oh i study and you don't motherfucker yeah like i'm so much smarter than you and that makes me superior yeah and then uh randy who's just an anxious mess of a person he reminds me of your friend uh matt miggles waffles the improv dude mike mike my bad (laughs) he reminds me of mike yeah he also looks like Mike. They also have a visual <laughs> similarity. If Randy gets a uh, foot taller and gets snake bites uh, <laughs> and starts doing improv <laughs> in a city adjacent to Los Angeles where he's almost assured not to have any success. <laughs> Mike's also a pretty accomplished guitar player, though. The improv thing is just to do. Anyway. Yeah, I don't. Well, good. Yeah, we can talk about why it's a bad idea to do improv in San Diego all day. Uh, none of my friends who do improv listen to this podcast and certainly don't pay for the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. Thank you very much. Uh, um, yeah. So basically, the the movie kind of kicks off with Dora just being treated like shit by everybody. The bus tries to kidnap her. Yeah. She's a weird kid. People don't like her. Yeah. It's the basic fish out of water story. Yeah. And then the whole movie turns itself on its head because not only is she not the fish out of water when they go to the jungle, all the other kids are the fish out of water. Whoa! Way to transform the concept. (laughs) Effectively, they go to a museum and one of the docents there is really a super secret agent for the bad guys. She's a Russian mercenary who's like, hey, you want to see this Egypt exhibit kid? And... Dora's a fucking nerd, so of course she does. And they go, and then her group just happens to be Diego, her cousin, Sonny, and Randy. Uh, They all end up getting paired together because they're all uh, excluded for different reasons. Yeah. And they end up following her down, and then Dora gets kidnapped, and they also get kidnapped with her. And then they get fucking sedated. (laughs) It was really funny because they hid. Did the the bad guys pulled out guns at one point, right? Or No. no. They, they just, hide because they think it's just museum work. Like, they think it's just museum security. Yes. So they hide in that crate for whatever fucking reason. And then Dora gets thrown into that crate. They throw a gas bomb. In, the bad guys throw a gas bomb into said crate and then lock it. So now it's just four teenagers passed out. <laughs> and long enough to make it all the way back down to Peru. Yeah, that's some real Jeffrey Epstein level <laughs> shit right there. That's not a healthy amount of time to be chemically induced into unconsciousness yeah damn maybe no they traveled by map didn't they that's always way faster yeah the indiana jones that (laughs) that was a big uh big thing in one of the muppets movies i can't remember uh muppets take manhattan there we go No, it was just the muppet movie was it yeah because him and fozzie are no, it's not to take Manhattan because they're getting the, they're getting the gang back together. Yeah, got to travel by map. <laughs> it was uh, that it's was a good really bit. yeah, that was really good. Man, those '80s Muppet movies are solid. Yeah, uh, uh, we should review one. We should. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, um, so like, there's three mercenaries. There, you've got your big bald black guy. You've got your Eastern European, uh, <laughs> and then the third guy is uh, Latino, and because. Of course they are. They're doing crimes in South America. Yeah. You got to have somebody who's familiar with the area. Yeah. Somebody from the streets. And then, so like they're trying to escape this box that they're just loaded into the back of a truck on. 
and some just guy appears out of nowhere yeah knowing exactly where the teenagers are without any like clue as to how he would know yeah he just arrives and he's like hey dora what's up uh hey i know your parents so we have to go yeah uh come with me if you want to live and then it's in this scene where what is up to this point been a very grounded adaptation of a very fantasy-esque cartoon that we're introduced to Swiper the Fox. They establish immediately after, like in the opening sequence, Boots can't talk, doesn't actually wear boots, is a normal monkey for all intents and purposes. In the same way Abu from Aladdin is a normal monkey. Can't talk, smarter than, you know, smarter than most monkeys would be, but still functionally a monkey. Swiper's straight up a walking, talking fox who is fully bipedal unless he wants to run faster, has is wearing a mask and gloves. Yeah, because he's got to remain anonymous. Can't be spotted. Can't leave any evidence. That's why he's wearing the gloves. And he's voiced by Benicio Del Toro. Yep. Which is so fucking weird. It's such a weird choice. <laughs> and he, like, attacks these children. He's a fox. It doesn't... It, it's, he's not held to the same societal standards he's just an animal so he steals dora's map that she's been keeping of her parents they've been like communicating via sat phone he's been keeping so she can keep track of how like how their expedition is going they lose contact and that's kind of that comes into it later but she has this map and she's marked their last known location the mercenaries want it that's what swiper goes to steal uh they escape but swiper still has the map and Swiper, again, is a walking, talking fox. And I don't want you to lose how weird this is. <laughs> it's so is it Swiper still fucking talks? strange. It's and so where's weird. the whole get up? He is normally in the cartoon. I've watched the cartoon before when I was a child. I mm. watched it. Uh, but he normally has the voice of a weenie. Yeah, he's like this. He's a really nasally like weasel voice when they say swiper no swiping swiper no swiping swiper no swiping oh man <laughs> and he just fucking leaves this is you got me fuck oh what you're gonna call the cops on a fox <laughs> yeah they're not gonna find him he's wearing that mask <laughs> yeah dude it's completely but anonymous as portrayed by benicio del toro he's like you got it man <laughs> Hey, these fucking kids, man. <laughs> he says man so many times in this movie. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's very weird. Um, oh, another th- holdover from the cartoon is that Dora likes to sing. She just likes, will sing songs. Yeah. It's kind of endearing. Uh, I think most of, we'll, we'll get to the performances after we finish recapping this weird fucking film. So this dude's helping him out. He's like, I worked with your dad. Uh, we got to find your parents before these mercenaries do. So they're doing that. And so as a result of jungle stuff, there is a sequence where they bump into these hallucinogenic flowers and uh, they turn into their cartoon selves. It's uh, weird. It's very trippy in the middle of this movie. Yeah. It's uh, I think it's just Diego and Dora. It's Dora, Diego and uh, whatever the dude's name is. Oh, yeah. The old man. Yeah. I think their characters in the show. I don't know. I've, I was aged out by the time Go Diego Go came on. Yeah, Diego looks more like his actor. He has like the uh, longer head instead of like the weird Hey Arnold head that Dora has. Yeah. But Dora looks exactly like the cartoon. So I got to 
I gotta mention the actor who plays Diego looks like he could be just an alien. <laughs> He's a very weird looking dude. <laughs> but I uh, taught many kids just like that kid. <laughs> just like weirdly tall, like slouching, skinny guys. Very long heads. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that happens. Um, there's like a weird kind of like misdirect where they meet this old. Uh, Incan woman, yeah, who still speaks Quechua, which is a real language, yeah. And she's like, "Hey, I can get you." And of course, Dora also speaks Quechua because she's smarter than everybody there. She's like, "I can get your friends back, and I can direct you towards this mystical city you're going to." And she turns out she has like a tattoo from the warriors that protect the city. So Randy and Sammy are booking it back to meet up with them. And that's when they find them all whacked out on flower pollen. And they catch up. Oh, they they find boots at some point. It's whatever. Uh, who knows? Who cares? Whatever. Uh, but yeah, they catch up to the They uh, catch up to the mercenaries. And they're like, all right, cool. We just have to like get around them. And we'll get to my parents first. And they do that. But then they end up basically getting there at the same time. Uh, and they all get captured. And then they make it to the city. Boots bust them out. Oh, there is a sequence where they get caught in quicksand. And Dora, of course, knows how to get out of quicksand. Oh, yeah, because they don't need rescuing because she's like, lay on your backs. Which is how you actually get out of quicksand. Yeah. Remember how frightening quicksand was in the 90s? It was in so many cartoons and movies that you're like, this is going to be a thing if I ever travel outside (laughs) of the metropolitan area I was raised in. And it's uh, very rare. If I go to the sandbox that's at school, <laughs> I might get trapped it in quicksand. Rains. It's going to be quicksand. <laughs> now, they, there was never any correlation between the sand being wet and becoming quicksand. It was always just sometimes there's just dirt <laughs> that wants to eat you. <laughs> so thanks, cartoons, um, for letting us know how bullshit that, for not letting us know how bullshit that all is. Yeah. But uh, an interesting exchange happens following this quicksand incident. The uh, grown man that has been helping them on their journey up to this point uh, does not follow Dora's directions on how to get out of the quicksand and gets, you know, ends up being fully submerged, but just happens to be over like a ridge thing. And so they're able to pull him out and he's fine. And he's like freaking out over mortality. And he says, uh, I'm a bad guy. And it's a very, like, quick throwaway thing uh, that comes up. Spoilers in, like, ten minutes. Um, (laughs) Turns out he's also one of the mercenaries. He just, like, yes-anded. This is speaking of improv. (laughs) Yes-anded the situation when he sees Dora peeking out of the crate when they're trying to escape. And it's just like, I know how to play this shit. Yeah. And just makes up this story on the spot, helps them escape, gets gets their help in finding uh, Dora's parents. It's a, a weird turn, but it's, in retrospect, very quick planning on his part. Yeah. He's very good at that. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is my chance. Yep. I'm going to finally get that raise. Just fucking jumps into it. And I don't know if it's like him that's been orchestrating it or what, because it seems like the other mercenaries like defer to him after that point. And maybe they're just really in awe of his planning skills. They're like, oh, well, shit. Well, you know, Pedro's got this. <laughs> <We> gotta- <laughs> Fuck it, dude, man. Come on. Great job. Great job. 
and they have like a gala gala later (laughs) it's like one of those like oh you were in band okay so we're doing this big band dinner (laughs) for all the bad guys it's like oh i want to give a special shout out to pedro (laughs) he did a really great job even though we didn't end up with the gold he ended up with the children and that's what matters well they'd have to honor him uh in absentia because he's still captured by Incans at the end of the movie. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Spoilers. They, they fucking put put up the uh, oh what's it oh what's it called? They do the PowerPoint project uh, PowerPoint presentation. Oh yeah, where it's like in memorial. Yes, in memorial. <laughs> Want to give a big shout out to Pedro? And look, I have to defer largely to Charles on this movie because I was so Denzel drunk. showed up drunk. And I was like, all right, dog. Let's do it. And then I brought rum in with us. And then I we did was, shots in the theater, and we both had a beer. I was so drunk. I was. I remember uh, parts of this movie. I I don't know. Like a good chunk of the middle of the movie is just lost. To we were also gone for like almost fifteen minutes at one point when you went back to concessions or something. Oh, really? That, yeah. Okay. You like, I don't know if you also went to the bathroom or what, but you were gone for a while. I did. Okay. I went. To, I went to the bathroom and then I went to concessions and they. Uh, <laughs> see, here's a sidebar. I went up to the concession stand and I said, "All right, give me your cheapest shots of tequila." And the guy, because for some reason now this movie theater sells liquor. Yeah, I knew they did beer. I didn't know they did liquor now. It's so weird. And I was just like, hey, yeah, give me two shots of tequila. And for some reason, this dipshit behind the bar puts ice in the glass. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> he pours it up. But Maybe other- that's what they have to do. Maybe so. Maybe not because they didn't have they didn't give it to him in shot glasses. No, they were little wine glasses. Exactly. That he you know put a shot of tequila in, and then also ice. Maybe that's just like a rule they have possibly but the dude at the register probably sensing that i was already drunk he was just like two patron shots and i was like oh they're giving us pat ron hell yeah and i paid the cheap price for it i was just like yes bro yes i appreciate you (laughs) yes you come back with two beers two shots and more popcorn and like one of the dudes from concessions is like behind you holding (laughs) the popcorn and one of the beers and i have a beer in my pocket it's fucking dope i was they wanted to give me two glasses for the beers because allegedly what they have to do is pour a little bit in the glass and then you can either take the cans or the glass. Uh, so they pour a little bit in these can uh, in these glasses. I slam the glasses real quick and then I just pocket the beer. I wear Carhartt shirts that have lapel pockets nice. and they're very good for holding beer. Yeah, uh, it fit the beer. Cans. It fit uh, the little bottle of worm I bought you. Yes. Yeah. Whew. I got. I was fucking destroyed. Yeah, we were both real drunk at this children's movie. Yeah, but I'm I mean, drunk when I see most movies. So I, it was really weird. Not many children in that screening, especially for opening weekend. Yeah, on a yeah, Sunday. On a Sunday, well, we read the budget. We we know how it's doing. Yeah, we did really poorly. It was like mostly old people. We were not the only adult men not accompanied by children <laughs> in that theater. Like there was a dude who came in like right like shortly after the film started that like sat like like behind us in the back left of the theater who just by himself didn't have any concessions didn't have anything with just sat down like all right dog yeah you do here for i know i'm drunk (laughs) what are you doing here i host a podcast what are you doing here maybe he's also hosting a worse podcast (laughs) worse but more popular (laughs) we'll get to that we'll fucking get to that 
Uh-huh. Yeah, one day we'll be popular enough that our quality can go down. Yeah, absolutely. And then we don't have to pretend this is our this isn't our second attempt at recording because <laughs> we were too hammered to talk about it afterwards. We recorded we recorded a version of this, and we were so drunk. Well, I was especially drunk. I can't imagine I was super coherent either because I got in the car afterwards, and I was like. Maybe I should <laughs> hang out. <laughs> I just went like down the road to my friends. Oh my god! I was like, I can't drive all the way to Chula Vista. Uh, I I think I went immediately to sleep after yeah, I was you were like, "Hey, we can't record another episode. I got to go to bed." <laughs> I was like, "I feel you. All right, bye." I woke up at midnight. I woke up. I woke up at midnight, oh, and I was just like, I fall asleep like four in the afternoon, and it's just. I was looking around my bedroom because I normally, normally when I get up, it's still pretty dark out. I get up most days at about 420, yeah. 430, something like that. And it's just because like I sit and I chill in bed and I have a tough time going back to sleep. Yeah. But normally I get in about like six to eight hours of sleep a night, whatever. And I got up at midnight and I was just like, oh, all right, cool. Let me uh, pull out my phone to make sure like morning stuff is going on on twitter or whatever and i can retweet a bunch of nasty shit and it wasn't because it was midnight yeah it was midnight and i was just like well now i have to try to get back to sleep and then three hours later i was just like all right i'm ready to go back to bed and then i was late to work (laughs) 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 Uh, it was great anyway back to door the explorer their uh boots helps door and the kids escape but they're not able to get their parents or get to his parents. So they just like go off. I'm like, what if we, if we get in here first, we can protect whatever shit they're trying to like. We can get to the gold before they do. And they do. I called him Pedro before. I could look up his name. I'm not going to. Yeah, fuck uh, that. He, he's like, yeah, I knew you fucking kids would figure these puzzles out. Now I'm here. And he's ready to like take the gold. And there's like a weird like statue that you have to make an offering to and if you don't pick the right thing it like aladdins you and like burns the place down or whatever and at first he's like gold and it doesn't fucking work and they're about to die and then Dora's like earn the warriors that protect the place show up including that old lady who then transforms into a younger woman very odd just with no explanation just morphs <laughs> maybe it's one of the legends of peru i don't know maybe I don't like maybe 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 they wrote this movie and they did like a really great job and there are like a bunch of undercover references that you would only know if you knew these things. Yeah, like if you're really into Peruvian culture <laughs> and uh ancient lore, so much of this stuff makes more sense. But uh <laughs> Yeah. I saw it uh drunk on a Sunday afternoon, so I don't know any of that. Yeah, Sam. Also everything in my life leading up to that point is why I don't know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, she transforms into another into a much younger woman, which is still not weirder than the walking, talking fox that we saw uh, just a few scenes earlier guarding one of the gates. I was just like singing a song and like the black guy is like mad at him about it. <laughs> I just I don't know what's weirder. I don't know. Like a person who can transform into a younger version of themselves ostensibly or magical brown people in movies is not more weird well i don't know because they exist in the same film so yeah like, right like what's what we, what would be more so no what, what i want to know what i want to know is what life in the city is like 
because yeah. no nobody really freaks out at the sight of a talking fox right? yeah the kids aren't weird like the old sammy brings up like that he's wearing a mask that's yeah. the only problem she has with swiper <laughs> existing is he's wearing a mask and randy's afraid of everything so neither of them really react abnormally to you know the, how they react is abnormal for seeing a walking talking fox wearing clothes yeah yeah what's life in the city like just tell me are there walking talking animals are there segregated yeah. schools Can some animals just talk yeah is that just a thing in this universe does snoopy exist does he still is he dead snoopy's probably dead yeah, of course he's he was like around like the 70s yeah r.i.p snoopy in memoriam snoopy <laughs> <laughs> 1973 to 1984 he was 11 he's Rip. uh well, I guess it's pretty smart Warner Brothers, but ostensibly, like probably, uh, you know, Scooby Doo from the 2004 Raja Gosnell Scooby Doo <laughs> definitely dead. <laughs> Great Danes don't live that long, <laughs> and he was around when they were kids, so he probably didn't have much time left Ooh, at the God time damn. of those movies. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Anyway, back to this weird fucking movie. What are the rules, Nickelodeon? <laughs> I just I like how they just threw a bunch of random shit in here. It's just like fuck it, dude. Because it's a pretty competent, like, teen adventure. Like, it, the plot never really like gets off the rails. This stuff is believable. Like the situations and stuff. Like whatever. She grew up in the jungle. She knows jungle shit. Uh, somehow, these kids haven't completely died. Yeah, actually, the movie is very coherent from what I remember anyway. It's not a poorly written movie. It works. Yeah. And also, mind you, it's a kid's movie, so it's not as if I'm like out here trying to scrutinize the fuck out of it, but I've seen bad kids' movies before. Yeah. Apparently, I haven't seen Up in a long time, but apparently that's a bad movie. Up is like three scripts, Frankenstein (laughs) together. Up's not good, and every time I tell people that, they get upset because they cried in the first five minutes. And even, like, that shit didn't get me the first time I watched it. And I love to cry at kids' movies. (laughs) So get at me. Um, Up's bad. Uh, The only part of Up that I like is that the bad guy is just a dude who went insane looking for a bird. And that concept is very funny. (laughs) But uh, Dora figures... So the warriors show up. uh, They capture the mercenaries and like they're gonna they're like you all have to fucking die because we've been warning you this whole time that anyone who seeks this power is doomed and so while this shit is going on dora like sneaks over to the can statue is real quick can i just remark on how shitty of a trap that is you're like yo like anybody who seeks this power is doomed but here's the power go get it if yeah. you want it yeah if you go to it then uh maybe you can figure it out but they're just looking for a reason to arrest people. This is like the equivalent of the adventurer's speed trap. Yeah. Where it's just like, yeah, the cop's sitting at the top of the hill waiting for people to hit the nadir of the hill. Yep. So he's like, oh, yeah, bitch, I got you speeding. <laughs> this is 45. What? You're going 50? Ha, got you. This is that same shit except with murder. And they were like shooting arrows and stuff at them before. It's like they're clearly cool with killing anybody who gets close to them. But uh, Dora like goes over and she figures it out. It's water. Water is important to everybody because uh, we're humans and we need it to live. That keeps the spikes in the it spikes in the ceiling. I think something keeps them from getting crushed. I like I like how it's important to everybody, and this culture found that out like hundreds of years ago. Yeah. But 
here's an alternative idea. What if this was built like fucking three weeks ago, like three (laughs) weeks prior to them showing up and they just coincidentally found it. People have been looking for it for a lifetime. And then somebody like reverse engineered all the clues and like found out where it was supposed to be approximately and just built it and was like, Yo, we need to pretend to be this like ancient culture yeah, so we a, can kill people. It's about to be either a poppin' theme park or just a murder dungeon for rich people. Thor figures it out and they're like, cool, you have to leave now though still. And so they do. <laughs> but they like capture Pedro or whatever. The other mercenaries and the talking fox get to leave. And I don't know what happens to them. No, are they also captured? I don't remember. I don't remember what happens to anybody after that. That they leave the temple. Me neither. But I they th- get rescued. Yeah, the people we're supposed to care about get rescued, and they like meet back at. They're like back at uh, Dora's parents' cabin that we, they started the film in, and then the movie ends, but not before cutting to a musical sequence uh, that starts. At the homecoming, oh yeah, it's the homecoming dance because it's like, like a that. it's like Maybe a winter it's like a winter dance earlier in the movie where Dora uh, where it does a weird weird animal themed dances that embarrass Diego so much that he storms out of the yes uh, yeah and then when they get back it's homecoming. And can I? And just, now they all know the animal dances, but then also they start singing. She's like, "Oh, this isn't part of the movie anymore. This yeah. is a dance sequence." Yeah, exactly. And I just want to remark that like, there's no hullabaloo or anything <laughs> over fact. missing children. They've been gone for it's explicitly like four days. They mention how long they've been in the jungle. It's like, what, what, was it just like the entry points of three day weekend or something? Right. Like they just disappeared from the museum and just, nobody was just like, well, I guess they just, uh, went, oh my gosh. Yeah. I had, I've had kids back when I was working with, uh, in, Back when I was teaching, I've had kids miss checkpoints, like check-ins on field trips. And we had to be like, hey, uh, shut this whole shit down. If you're missing one kid, no one's allowed to leave that museum the rest of the day. Oh, shit. Like, until that kid gets found, everything's locked. You're not allowed to fucking leave. They want to make sure that this kid didn't get kidnapped. Uh, But apparently, four children can disappear. Two of whom belong to the same family, which makes that family immediately suspects. Yes. And they're gone for minimum four days. And then they show up uh, in the same clothes that they left in. um, uh, Probably reeking of. How bad do you think those kids smelled? Terribly. It had to be. Like, because they're they're still. They're they're also 16. So 16 year olds are. They don't smell good. They just don't. It's not their fault. They just can't. Their body's figuring shit out still. That's why you have to use Axe body spray to cover it up. Oh, man. My brother uh, played lacrosse, and I am seven years older than him, and I frequently would drive him and his friends home from practice, and I wanted to set my car on fire because the smell (laughs) would get so bad from just the 20 minutes they'd be in my fucking car. Ew. Um, Teenagers smell bad, and they've been in the jungle for four four days. Uh, Also, just like pissing and shitting outside with very few things to keep yourself clean from and they didn't eat much either yeah damn dude they must have been tired and like real pissed off like they've at most been 
They've been drinking water because uh, Dora carries around desalination tablets. Hell yeah. And iodine so they can like have fresh water all the time. <laughs> and in case they come across irradiated water. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they're rescued. There's a dance sequence. Um, and then the movie's over. Yeah. Weirdly enough, pretty well acted. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I think a lot of it is sold by how endearing and not annoying the actress who plays Dora is because it is she's doing a lot yeah uh she's like being a cartoon character but like grown up but with the same mannerisms because she's was fucking homeschool kids are weird they just are if sorry if you were homeschooled you're probably weird you probably (laughs) figured it out in college that uh there were some socialization skills you didn't quite have but uh a 16-year-old homeschool kid whose best friend is a monkey? Weird. That's going to be a weird kid. And she was. But it never, like, it never dipped into being annoying to watch. Yeah. So, shouts out to that actress. Isabella something. Yeah, whatever her fucking name is. Um, hopefully, <laughs> uh, she's not. Isabella Moner. Hopefully, she gets to continue to have a career. A lot of Latina, uh, Latinx actors and actresses do not. Uh, so hopefully that's, that works out for her, despite the fact that this movie is she is not on track to do well. Absolutely, 100%, 18 years old. She was born in, in Cleveland, Ohio. In 2001. In 2001, yes, before or after 9-11. I'm going to go with after. Nope, before. Oh, man. Yeah. You could. Yeah. Well, I guess if she's 18 now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking weird, bro. But yeah, she's pretty solid. Uh, not, the other kids also, like, I think they give them mannerisms and, like, quirks to them. But only, like, once or twice does Sammy get a little annoying. And it's, like, at the beginning while they're still setting up who her character is. Like, the uh, when they're at the museum, she's kind of annoying. And the scene she's introduced in, also pretty bothersome. But uh, after that... It's she's she's fine. Randy's just kind of there. Uh, weird dude. Token. The, yeah. Just he's the only white main character, though. So shouts out Nickelodeon. And then the actor who plays Diego is just a tall, quiet, awkward kid. And with a long head. Does a great job of it. Looks like a gray alien. He looks very uncomfortable all the time, especially when he has to talk. And uh Again, someone used to teach high school. It's accurate. <laughs> okay. Well, overall, uh, I probably, you know what? If somebody put this on while I was with them, I wouldn't be mad at it. Yeah. Like if five months from now, I just like someone just threw it on Netflix. I'd be like, how oh, is that movie that I meant to check out? Except that I won't, that won't be me. Cause I saw it in theaters <laughs> opening weekend. But, uh, I, yeah, this was just like on Netflix at a, you know, someone's house. I'd be like, all right, well, this is actually not terrible. And I'd probably sit down. Yeah. Like, it'd be enough to keep my interest, but it's not something I'd actively have sought out if Juice uh, Campbell hadn't been like, yo, watch this fucking movie. And then we just have, both have just little enough going on on Sundays <laughs> to go do that shit. <laughs> yeah, dude, I bowl on Sundays. Oh, well, that's for another episode that we're going to do. All right. Overall thoughts. We just finished. Not a bad movie. 
Yeah, I enjoyed. Perfectly serviceable as a children's movie. I, there were elements that I enjoyed. I thought it was very funny at times. And it's well acted. Holds together pretty well. Solid. Yeah. If you have kids, it's a good excuse to see it. If you don't have kids, definitely get drunk like we did. <laughs> I, I, maybe I wouldn't recommend seeing it in theaters. I mean, I mean, I kind of say, yes, do go see it. I don't but, think this is a movie that you're going to lose anything by not seeing it on a big screen. Yeah, yeah. This is also, for some reason, I have to remark on this because I did watch Jumanji. Mm-hmm. And compared to this movie, the sets in Jumanji look so fucking terrible. Yeah. Holy yeah, shit. I just, recently, I just recently rewatched uh, Jumanji. And- I'm sorry, uh, the remake with The Rock. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because yeah. I saw the trailer for the new one. And I was like, well, let me see if I still, because I liked the first one when I saw it in theaters. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it again. I was like, still enjoyable, but everything is so clearly green screen. This is, yeah. You could tell the cast that the production team for Dora was like, we got to shoot this shit on site for at least some of these scenes. And looks good because they, they went that extra little bit. Yeah. This could have easily been all CG. And so, like, there's one thing in particular in Jumanji where they're just standing like next to a cliff or whatever, and they it's the part where they push each other off yeah, or whatever. The compositing is bad. Yeah, and also like some of the trees that are in the foreground look like paper mache. Yeah, they just look like shit. Or the set where they find fucking Nick Jonas. Yes, is like it's so clearly a set. Yeah, it's fucking embarrassing, and people love The Rock. And Hollywood loves the rock. We'll talk about that yeah. in another podcast. All right. Well, anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening to this review of Dora and the city of gold. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. We'll, uh, catch you some other time. Swiper still talks. Yeah. <laughs> swipe. And Don't we forget that. It, it, they say swiper, no swiping at one point in the movie. And it's just, he just kind of is like, yeah, he still takes the map. He still like, takes the map. What? The f- what? Yeah, why would that work? <laughs> Just, it's so weird. It's so weird. All right. Oh, also, Danny Trejo is Boots in one scene. Yeah. We, we just kind of skipped over that. Boots is mostly inconsequential to the story, uh, but he does speak to Dora after she thinks she's failed, and that's it. Okay, bye for real. Yeah. Peace.